Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 10, Chapter 34. This chapter shows the movement of Napoleon from being sure he's going to win to being in despair because he knows he's losing. Is Tolstoy trying to make his him seem sympathetic in this chapter? What do you think is going through Napoleon's head during the shift from surety to despair? And is this chapter different from the propaganda accounts by French historians that Tolstoy bashes earlier in the book? Twisted Every Way says, I don't think Tolstoy is trying to make Napoleon sympathetic. I think he's actually showing how arrogant he is. He doesn't trust his leaders, his boots on the ground, about how the war is going. He knows best, even though he can't even see clearly what is going on. Excuse me. He even ignores one of the adjutant's suggestions for which battalion to send. I don't think Napoleon is going to make so take so kindly to losing this battle. Rahul the Invader says, This chapter perfectly encapsulates the fog of war from a decision-making perspective. Tolstoy is alluding that sitting where he is, there is no way Napoleon can affect the war through his genius. A lot of non-fiction books describe how famous generals lost or won wars, but through mere pages, Tolstoy is able to communicate how your well-planned strategies can go for a toss. Napoleon so far hasn't lost a crucial war, and from his perspective... The events in this chapter marked the beginning of his downfall. And Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, My version has Napoleon tell de Bussu to go to dash dash. Should I assume this is a censored version of go to hell, or perhaps Elise Souffert Voix, or even Elise Souffert Foutre? In the original con- in the original text, says Cortio, it's censored as well. Elise Vues dot dot dot. He's told him to go to hell. Wow. Strong words. Strong words for the 1800s. Um, what? What? Uh, who would have thought Napoleon was a little potty mouth? A little potty mouth. A little potty mouth bitch. Napoleon's a little potty mouth bitch. Uh, okay, let's talk about chapter 35 now. And by talk about it, I mean read it. It goes like this. On the rug covered bench where Pierre had seen him in the morning sat Kutuzov. His grey head hanging... His heavy body relaxed. He gave no orders, but only assented to or dissented from what others suggested. Yes, yes, do that, he replied to various proposals. Yes, yes, go, dear boy, and have a look, he would say to one or another of those about him. Or no, don't, we'd better wait. He listened to the reports that were brought him and gave directions when his subordinates demanded that of him. But when listening to the reports, it seemed as if he were not interested in the import of the words spoken, but rather in something else, the in the expression of face and tone of voice of those who were reporting. By long years of military experience, he knew, and with the wisdom of age, understood that it is impossible for one man to direct hundreds of thousands of others struggling with death, and he knew that the result of a battle is decided not by the orders of a commander-in-chief, nor the place where the troops are stationed, nor by the number of cannon or the slaughtered men, but by that intangible force called the spirit of the army. And he watched this force and guided it in as far as that was in his power. Kutuzov's general expression was one of a concentrated, quiet attention, and his face wore a strained look as if he found it difficult to master the fatigue of his old and feeble body. At eleven o'clock, they brought him news that the Fletchers captured by the French had been retaken, 
but that Prince Bagration was wounded. Kutuzov groaned and swayed his head. Ride over to Prince Peter Ivanovich and find out about it exactly, he said to one of his adjutants, and then turned to the Duke of Wartenberg, who was standing behind him. Will your highness please take command of the First Army? Soon after the Duke's departure, before he could possibly have reached Semenovsk, his adjutant came back from him and told Kutuzov that the Duke asked for more troops. Kutuzov made a grimace and sent an order to Dokturov to take over the command of the First Army, and a request to the Duke, whom he said he could not spare at such an important moment, to return to him. When they brought him news that Murat had been taken prisoner and the staff officers congratulated him, Kutuzov smiled. Wait a little, gentlemen, said he. The battle is won, and there is nothing extraordinary in the capture of Murat. Still, it is better to wait before we rejoice. But he sent an adjutant to take the news around the army. When Sherbin, sorry, Sherbinin came galloping from the left flank with news that the French had captured the Fletchers and the village of Semenovsk, Kutuzov, guessing by the sounds of the battle and the Sherbinin's looks that the news was bad, rose as if to stretch his legs and, taking Sherbinin's arm, led him aside. Go, my dear fellow, he said to Ermolov, and see whether something can't be done. Kutuzov was in Gorky, near the centre of the Russian position. The attack, directed by Napoleon against our left flank, had been seen, sorry, had been several times repulsed. In the centre, the French had not gone, not got beyond Borodino, and on their left flank, Uvarov's cavalry had put the French to flight. Towards three o'clock, the French attacks ceased on the faces of all who came from the field of battle and of those who stood around him. Kutuzov noticed an expression of extreme tension. He was satisfied with the day's success, a success exceeding his expectations, but the old man's strength was failing him. Several times his head dropped low as if it were falling, and he dozed off. Dinner was brought to him. Adjutant General Walzogan, the man who, had, who, when riding past Prince Andre, had said the war should be extended widely, and whom Bagration so detested, rode up while Kutuzov was at dinner. Walzogan had come from Barclay de Tolly to report on the progress of affairs on the left flank. The sagacious Barclay de Tolly, seeing crowds of wounded men running back and the disordered rear of the army weighed all the circumstances, conclude, concluded that the battle was lost and sent his favourite officer to the commander-in-chief with that news. Kutuzov was chewing a piece of roast chicken with difficulty and glanced at Rolzogan, with eyes that brightened under the puckering lids. Walzogan nonchalantly, stretching his legs, approached Kutuzov with a half-contemptuous smile on his lips, scarcely touching the peak of his cap. He treated his Serene Highness with a somewhat affected nonchalance intended to show that as a highly trained military man he left it to the Russians to make an idol of his useless, this useless old man. But that he knew whom he was dealing with, der Alt-Herr, as in their own set the Germans called Kutuzov, is making himself very comfortable, thought Walzogan, 
and looking severely at the dishes in front of Kutuzov, he began to report to the old gentleman the position of affairs on the left flank as Barclay had ordered him to, and as he himself had seen and understood it. All the points of our position are in the enemy's hands, and we cannot dislodge them for lack of troops. The men are running away, and it is impossible to stop them, he reported. Kutuzov ceased chewing and fixed an astonished gaze on Wolzogen, as if not understanding what was said to him. Wolzogen, noticing the old gentleman's agitation, said with a smile, I have not considered it right to conceal from your historian highness what I have seen. The troops are in complete disorder. You have seen? You have seen? Kutuzov shouted, frowning and rising quickly. He went up to Wolzogen. How, how dare you? he shouted choking and making a threatening gesture with his trembling arms. How dare you, sir, say that to me? You know nothing about it. Tell General Barclay from me that his information is incorrect and that the real course of the battle is better known to me, the commander-in-chief, than to him. Wolzogen was about to make a rejoinder, but Kutuzov interrupted him. The enemy has been repulsed on the left and defeated on the right flank. If you have seen a miss, sir, do not allow yourself to say... What you don't know. Be so good as to ride to, to General Barclay and inform him of my firm intention to attack the enemy tomorrow, said Kutuzov sternly. All was silent and only sound audible. The only sound audible was the heavy breathing of the panting old general. They are repulsed everywhere, for which I thank God and our brave army. The enemy is beaten and tomorrow we shall drive him from the sacred soil of Russia said Kutuzov, crossing himself, and he suddenly sobbed as his eyes filled with tears. Wolzogen, shrugging his shoulders and curling his lips, stepped silently aside, marvelling at the old gentleman's conceited stupidity. Ah, here he is, my hero, said Kutuzov, to a portly, handsome, dark-haired general who was just ascending the knoll. This was Ravsky, who had spent the whole day at the most important part of the field of Borodino. Ravsky reported that the troops were firmly holding their ground and that the French no longer ventured to attack. After hearing him, Kutuzov said in French, Then you do not think like some others that we must retreat. On the contrary, Your Highness, in indecisive actions it is always the most stubborn who remain victors, replied Raevsky, and in my opinion. Kesarov, Kutuzov called to his adjutant, sit down and write out the order of the day for tomorrow, and you, he continued addressing another, ride along the line and announce that tomorrow we attack. While Kutuzov was talking to Raevsky and dictating the order of the day, Wolzogen returned from Barclay and said that General Barclay wished to have written confirmation of the order that Field Marshal had given. Kutuzov, without looking at Wolzogen, gave directions for the order to be written out which the former Commander-in-Chief, to avoid personal responsibility, very judiciously wished to receive and by means of that mysterious, indefinable bond which maintains throughout an army, one and the same temper, known as the spirit of the army, and which constitutes the sinews of war, Kutuzov's words, his order for a battle next day, immediately became known from one end of the army to the other. It was far from being the same words, or the same order, that reached the farthest links of that chain, the tales passing from mouth to mouth at different ends of the army did not even resemble what Kutuzov had said, but the sense of his words spread everywhere because what he said was not the outcome of cunning calculations, but of a feeling that lay in the commander-in-chief's soul, as in that of every Russian. And on learning that tomorrow they were to attack the enemy, and hearing from the highest quarters a confirmation 
or what they wanted to believe, the exhausted, or exhausted wavering men felt comforted and inspirited. 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 I uh, didn't know that word, inspirited. Um, I'm guessing it means spirited. Um, it's not like the opposite of spirited. Sometimes when it has in at the start, it's the opposite. And sometimes it's just the same, like inflammable. In, inflammable? Inflammable. Oh, God. Who cares? Anyway, that's the end of that chapter. Just confusing my own head. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow.